I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. (music) Greetings from sunny Durham, North Carolina. This is part five of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I hope you're enjoying this podcast so far. If you are, please subscribe on iTunes, and if you really like it, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a good review. And the best way to support this podcast is to go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make it all possible. Thanks a lot. So when we last left Julius Caesar, all the pieces were in motion. Yes, Brutus and crew had succeeded in assassinating Caesar, but in the aftermath, they'd lost control of the situation. It ended up with Antony turning the tables on them, and Cassius and Brutus and the other conspirators having to flee the city. So now you have Antony and Caesar's heir Octavius and their friend Lepidus together ruling Rome, and Brutus and Cassius and their crew regrouping outside of it. And if this were a movie between Act 4, Scene 1 and Act 4, Scene 2, you'd have one of those title cards that said something like, One Year Later? In the real history, about a year or so had passed between these two events. Shakespeare seems to be compressing it a little bit, but suffice it to say that some time has passed because Brutus and Cassius have managed to get armies together. And what we have us here is a war play. And here comes Brutus with his army onto the stage. And who's with Brutus? Well, it's this new character, Lucilius. He seems to be a lieutenant of his. And the first thing Brutus says is a command. He says, stand, ho. Stand is the equivalent of our modern word, halt. And ho, as we've seen before, is just an expression that means like, hey there. So it's an order to the men. And Lucilius passes that order on. He says, give the word, ho, and stand. Give the word here is like that game telephone. Pass it along. In other words, tell everyone behind you. What? Ho and stand. Hey there, halt. So it's being passed along from man to man. This must be a pretty big force here. And when the army's halted, Brutus turns to him and says, What now, Lucilius? Is Cassius near? Oh, so evidently he's meeting Cassius. And what information does Lucilius have for him? He says, He is at hand, and Pindarus is come to do you salutation from his master. So Cassius is at hand, at hand meaning nearby. And this guy Pindarus, another new character, he's come to do you salutation. Do you salutation in the sense of salute or greet from his master, his master being Cassius. So Pindarus works for Cassius. In fact, he seems to be a slave. And Brutus is glad to hear it. He says, he greets me well. The well here seems to imply that he's excited that Pindarus is the one who arrived, like he sent a good envoy. So it's kind of a way to butter up Pindarus too. And then some really interesting information comes down. Brutus addresses Pindarus. He says, Your master Pindarus, in his own change or by ill officers, hath given me some worthy cause to wish things done undone. But if he be at hand, I shall be satisfied. So this is a much more bitter Brutus than we've seen in the past. Your master, in other words, Cassius, in his own change. So either because he himself has changed, he's had a change of heart or maybe a change of plans. Either that or by ill officers, ill like bad or unworthy people serving him. So either Cassius has changed or he's getting bad advice. That's given Brutus some worthy cause, worthy meaning like justified or warranted, like a really good cause to wish things done undone. Oh, I love this phrase. It's so tight and so packed with meaning. So because of the things that Cassius has supposedly done to Brutus, Brutus is wishing that things that they did could be undone. Well, those are some interesting regrets. Like what does he wish undone? Like the whole assassination? This is very loaded. But, he says, if he be at hand, again meaning nearby or close by, so if in fact he is at hand, as Lucilius just told him, then he says, I shall be satisfied. And satisfied doesn't just mean like happy. Satisfied literally means like 
reassured or had explained to him. So it's as though he's saying Cassius has some explaining to do. He's going to have to satisfy Brutus. And this is such a charged statement that Pindarus has to reply immediately to him. So he literally finishes his verse line. He says, I do not doubt, but that my noble master will appear such as he is, full of regard and honor. So Brutus just says, if he's in fact near, well, then Pindarus responds, I have no doubt that my noble master, that Cassius, will appear, like he'll arrive here, such as he is. Such meaning like just or exactly as he is. And how is he? Well, he's full of regard and honor. Regard means respect. And it could really mean respect from Brutus, or it could mean respect for Brutus. So he'll be worthy of respect, or he'll also be respectful to Brutus. Full of regard and honor. There's that incredibly important word, honor, again, which Antony has just turned on its head. But since Brutus is really doubting Cassius's motives here, it's up to Pindarus to reassure him that he's a respected, honorable man. And Brutus responds directly to Pindarus's language of, I do not doubt. He says, he is not doubted. Like, I don't doubt him. I'm sure he's full of regard and honor. So he says he is not doubted, but then the first thing he does is he grabs his guy Lucilius and says, a word, Lucilius, how he received you. Received meaning treated, like when you spoke to him. Oh, so this implies that Lucilius actually met with Cassius. But see, right after Brutus put on this public face of he is not doubted, yeah, I'm sure he's great, he immediately doubts him. He wants to know what's really going on with Cassius. He says, let me be resolved. Resolved meaning informed or like filled in. I need to know this information. Can I really trust Cassius? And Lucilius has kind of an ambiguous answer. He says, with courtesy and with respect enough, but not with such familiar instances, nor with such free and friendly conference as he hath used of old. So he was definitely courteous and respectful, but not with such familiar instances. You could almost turn that phrase around to instances of familiarity, signs of friendship. So he was perfectly courteous and respectful, but he didn't show the same signs of friendship, nor with such free and friendly conference, free here meaning like comfortable or easy, and conference, conversation. So now with that usual easy, friendly conversation, as he hath used of old. Used like been accustomed to doing, of old, in the past, usually. Notice, by the way, the alliteration of free and friendly. You get that FR sound at the beginning of both words. It really makes it seem breezier. So he's acting differently from the way he used to act. He's talking differently. And that's just confirmation for Brutus. He cuts him off midline. He says, thou hast described a hot friend cooling. A hot friend, not like good looking, but like enthusiastic, devoted, cooling, growing less devoted. So that hot and cold are two different kinds of friendship. They used to be hot friends. And this seems like an example of Cassius's friendship cooling down. Brutus is really suspicious. He goes on to tell Lucilius, ever note Lucilius, when love begins to sicken and decay, it useth an enforced ceremony. So ever note means always notice. This is like a pointer for Lucilius going forward. When love begins to sicken and decay, I love those words, you get those hard K sounds in the middle. It's love almost like a dying person. It's getting sick and then it's decaying, it's died. So when that happens, it useth an enforced ceremony. Enforced like forced or fakey. And then ceremony is like excessive courtesy or formality. So whenever you see someone getting all formal with you, that means they don't really like you anymore. There are no tricks in plain and simple faith. So there's no tricks. There's nothing like artificial or put on in plain and simple faith. Faith here, not like religious faith, but like loyalty or trustworthiness. So real loyalty, plain and simple loyalty, there's no tricks in that. There's nothing artificial about that. But hollow men, like horses hot at hand, make gallant show and promise of their mettle, 
but when they should endure the bloody spur, they fall their crests, and like deceitful jades, sink in the trial. But instead, hollow men. This is probably where T.S. Eliot stole that title. Here it means empty, or false, or insincere. Men who are all outside show, with no inner strength. Like horses, hot at hand. At hand means at the beginning, and specifically, at the beginning of a race. So why are the horses hot? Not like the hot friends. It means like hasty or really fast. It's a horse that charges out of the gate at the beginning of the race. They make gallant show. Gallant show is like a really over-the-top demonstration of bravery. It's a show of gallantry. So they make this gallant show and promise of their mettle. Mettle being like their high spirit. So they promise, they seem to demonstrate how great they are at the beginning. But when they should endure the bloody spur? Endure means put up with. And then the bloody spur is late in a race, like when you start whipping the horse when it loses its momentum and starts to tire out. Instead of whips, they used to use spurs, which are these sharp metal things you wear on your boots, and you would dig it into the side of a horse to make it go faster. So when push really comes to shove, when we start fighting to see who's going to win, then they fall their crests. Fall means to let drop or let fall. And crests are that ridge of hair on a horse's neck. So that hair should be up, but instead they're kind of letting it go down, they're losing the momentum... And like deceitful jades, jades are like worn out, terrible horses, old nags. And why are they deceitful? Because they tricked you into thinking they were amazing runners at the beginning of the race. They sink in the trial. They fail when the real test arises. You know, it's easy to be supportive at the beginning of these trials, but now it's really coming to a head. And Brutus is saying that hollow men like this, that's when they're going to disappoint you, when it really matters. So clearly Pindarus's assurance has done nothing for him. He still thinks that Cassius is going to welch on him. He has a practical question for Lucilius. He says, comes his army on? Like, is his army almost here? And Lucilius replies, they mean this night in Sardis to be quartered. They mean they intend this night, tonight, in Sardis. This is a city in Turkey in the Eastern Roman Empire. So they're going to be quartered, quartered meaning like camped or housed, in Sardis tonight. But, he says, the greater part, the horse in general, are come with Cassius. The greater part, the larger part of the army, the horse in general horse meaning cavalry, not just individual horses. So all his soldiers on horseback, well, there come with Cassius. And as if on cue, in comes Cassius with the horse. Although on stage, probably not that many horses. And Brutus says, hark, he has arrived. Hark usually means like, listen. Here it may mean something more like, behold, or look over there. He's arrived. March gently on to meet him. Gently here may mean something like a gentleman, nobly. There's that word again. So it seems to be a command to his army. Even though on stage, there's not that much terrain to traverse. So Cassius sees Brutus's forces, and he says that same word, stand ho, halt there to his men. And evidently Brutus's march has been short, but it's done now, because he says to his men as well, stand ho, everybody halt, speak the word along. There's that same phrase again, give the word to all the troops behind you to halt. And there's a little bit of phrasing in here that they can use, they can say stand, stand, stand. You actually hear the word being passed along. So here's Cassius and his army, and Cassius is pissed. His first words to Brutus before hello are, most noble brother, you have done me wrong. It's funny how poorly the first half and the second half of that sentence go together. He says, most noble brother, noble Brutus, there it is again. And see again how that word noble is devalued because he's using it in a fake way that he doesn't mean. But then the second half of that phrase, you have done me wrong. So he immediately attacks Brutus. And Brutus, as most people do when he's attacked, reacts badly. He says, judge me, you gods. So he literally turns to the gods and is like, you know what, you judge me. There's actually a really cool echo of a few scenes back here, because a very similar phrase was in Mark Antony's speech to the people. 
and it was calling on the gods to judge how much Caesar loved Brutus. So it's a cool, sort of strange echo. And what does Brutus want the gods to judge him on? He says, wrong I mine enemies? In other words, do I wrong my enemies? Even my enemies? Notice how he's cueing directly off of you have done me wrong. And if not so, how should I wrong a brother? So if I don't even do my enemies wrong, how is it possible that I would wrong a brother, which Cassius just called him? Remember, they actually are brothers-in-law. Cassius picks up on that word wrong again. So that's three wrongs in a row. He says, Brutus, this sober form of yours hides wrongs. And when you do them, so this sober form, sober here, not in our modern sense of not drunk, more like serious or dignified. So this serious form, outward appearance or behavior. So you act all serious on the outside, but that outside hides wrongs. I actually think this is kind of the best critique of Brutus in the play. He acts so serious and important outside, but it actually covers up a lot of his internal flaws. And when you do them, when you do those wrongs, and immediately Brutus cuts him off. He does not want to hear this. How dare you talk like that to me? He jumps into his verse line. He says, Cassius, be content. Be content like be reasonable or calm down. Because what is Brutus always thinking of? How this is going to look. He says, speak your griefs softly. Not our sense of griefs, more like grievances. Like if you're going to air your grievances, air them quietly. I do know you well. Like I know this is just how you are. And you can see Brutus trying to calm down Cassius and almost calm himself down too. There are these short little choppy half lines. Cassius, be content. Speak your grief softly. I do know you well. And why does he want him to calm down? Before the eyes of both our armies here, which should perceive nothing but love from us, let us not wrangle. So before the eyes, in front of the eyes of both our armies here, let us not wrangle. Wrangle meaning like argue or fight. Let's not fight in front of the kids. Why? Because they should perceive nothing but love from us. Again, how is this going to look if our armies see what's going on here? We have to project confidence and love for each other. He says, bid them move away. Bid, tell them or ask them to move away from here. Let's get the armies out of the way. Then in my tent, Cassius, enlarge your griefs and I will give you audience. So when we're in my tent, then you can enlarge your griefs. Enlarge meaning like fully express or release. Remember, he was just telling him to speak his griefs softly, his grievances. Well, then you'll be able to enlarge your griefs. You almost imagine him like with a bicycle pump, blowing up the balloon of his grievances. And I will give you audience. I'll listen to you. And Cassius puts his anger on hold for a second. He turns to Pindarus and says, Pindarus, bid our commanders lead their charges off a little from this ground. So Brutus just suggested bid them move away. Well, now bid our commanders lead their charges off. Tell our commanders to lead their charges, meaning the soldiers they command, off a little from this ground, from this place. So Cassius is moving his army out. And then Brutus gives the same order to his own troops. He says, Lucius, do you the like, and let no man come to our tent till we have done our conference. This is a little confusing, because he's talking to this guy Lucius. Lucius, as you may remember, and as we'll see again, is kind of his manservant. He doesn't seem to be very old. Is this the same Lucius? Is he actually talking to Lucilius? Is there another Lucius entirely he's talking to? It's a little bit of a confusing point. But anyway, he tells someone who works for him, do you the like, in other words, do the same thing, and let no man come to our tent till we have done our conference, till we've finished our conversation. Let Lucilius and Titinius guard our door. Oh, so it's so serious that they actually need guards outside the tent. Nobody can hear what's happening inside. But lucky us, we get to go inside the tent. Now, usually there's a scene break here between Act 4, Scene 2 and Act 4, Scene 3. But it's basically cosmetic, because most productions of this just have them walk into the tent. If this were a movie, you could either crossfade directly to them in the tent, or you could follow them as they walk into the tent. 
But on stage, what usually happens is they walk a few feet, the light changes, and there we are. So either way, it's a little bit of stage magic that suddenly the setting completely changes from this giant field with these big armies to a tiny little tent with just two guys in it. And we've seen this happen a few times in the play now, where you have these big giant scenes, and all of a sudden they turn into little tiny scenes. And vice versa. And here comes the showdown. As soon as they're alone, the second they're alone, Cassius turns back to the same subject. He says, that you have wronged me doth appear in this. So again, there's not a lot of tact here with Cassius. Just as he came in the first time saying, you wronged me, he says it again. In fact, that you have wronged me doth appear in this. It's apparent from this, what I'm about to say. You have condemned and noted Lucius Pella for taking bribes here of the Sardians, wherein my letters, praying on his side, because I knew the man, was slighted off. What has Brutus done? He's condemned and noted, noted meaning publicly disgraced, this guy Lucius Pella. For what? For taking bribes here of the Sardians. In other words, from the people of Sardis. Wherein my letters, wherein here means like in the cause of, or on the side of, on the side of his case, praying on his side, which is something like asking you to treat him favorably. I made a request for him because I knew the man. His letters were slighted off. Slighted off means disregarded like they were nothing. So this dude was taking these tiny little bribes from the guys in Sardis. I knew him. I told you it was fine. Let him go. But you ignored my letters. And Brutus again picks up on that wronged me thing. He says, you wronged yourself to write in such a case. I wronged you? No, you wronged yourself to write in a case like this, to write those letters. Like, why would you bother supporting this guy in a case of bribery? And Cassius responds, he says, in such a time as this, it is not meet that every nice offense should bear his comment. In such a time as this, this really important time, when they're in desperate straits, they're going to go fight a war. So at a time like this, it is not meet, it isn't appropriate or fitting that every nice offense... Nice in a very different way than we use it. Here it means trivial or unimportant. Every stupid little offense should bear his comment. Bear his comment meaning criticized, not a particular him. So why are you criticizing every little stupid case here? And Brutus is not having any of that. He says, let me tell you, Cassius, you yourself are much condemned to have an itching palm, to sell and mart your offices for gold to undeservers. Oh, you criticize me? It's coming back. Let me tell you, you yourself are much condemned, much criticized for or blamed for having an itching palm. I love that expression. It's a hand that itches for bribes. It's a way of saying it without really saying it. So maybe you shouldn't be talking about this because I've heard you blamed for liking bribes too. To sell and mart your offices for gold. Mart here in the sense of market or sell off your offices. Offices being like important official positions. So he's selling these positions for gold to undeservers, to people who don't even deserve the jobs. It's just pure patronage. So instead of actually addressing Cassius's criticism, he just turns it back around on him and says, actually, I heard you like bribes too. No wonder you supported this guy. And Cassius is gobsmacked. He says, I, an itching palm? So you're saying that I like bribes? But again, you get to use that wonderful itching palm phrase. It just comes out of the blue at him. He didn't expect to be attacked personally. And Cassius is livid. He says, you know that you are Brutus that speaks this, or by the gods, this speech were else your last. You know, maybe something like you're relying on the fact that you're Brutus that's speaking these words, or else by the gods. In other words, I swear by the gods, this speech you just gave were else your last. Else meaning otherwise. So if it wasn't you, I would kill you where you stood. And Brutus responds in very similar terms. He says, the name of Cassius honors this corruption, and chastisement doth therefore hide his head. Name here is sort of like reputation, although that's a very loaded word to use in this play where names are so important. Names like Caesar. 
So because you have an honorable reputation, your corruption goes by the wayside. And chastisement, chastisement meaning punishment, doth therefore hide his head. I like the alliteration of hide his head. So because you're you, in the same sense that Cassius just said, because you're Brutus, now Brutus is saying, because you're Cassius, you're not going to be punished for something you should obviously be punished for. And again, Cassius can only repeat his words. He says, chastisement? Like you calling for me to be punished for this nothing? And finally, the self-righteous Brutus just explodes on him. He says, remember March. The Ides of March, remember. This is a really cool phrase, both in the sound and in the meaning. So you see that chiasmus effect? Remember March, March, remember? It's almost a palindrome of words. It's an incredibly arresting image. Remember that day when we killed Julius Caesar? It immediately brings both their minds and our minds in the audience back to this moment. Did not great Julius bleed for justice's sake? Great Julius, Caesar. Didn't he bleed? Didn't we kill him for the sake of justice? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? Villain is another very charged word. It's one of the things they called the conspirators after Antony's speech. But here it seems to imply what a villain someone would have been if they touched his body, not just stabbed, but touched his body, if they stabbed but not for justice. So if someone touched his body for any reason other than justice, that person was a villain. What, shall one of us that struck the foremost man of all this world but for supporting robbers? Shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes and sell the mighty space of our large honors for so much trash as may be grasped thus? You can hear Brutus start to spin out of control here in all of his language. It's those three questions in a row. It's the very, very long sentence at the end of this speech. You can also see that enjambment effect again, where the idea runs from the end of one verse line into the next one with no break. That did stab and not for justice. Shall one of us that struck this world but for? Shall we now contaminate our fingers, our large honors for so much trash? He's getting really worked up emotionally. Shall one of us that struck the foremost man, struck here meaning killed, stabbed. So is it right that one of us assassins that killed the foremost man of all this world, the most important person in the world, but for supporting robbers, but here means only or just for supporting robbers. This implies a justification we have not heard for killing Caesar before. It's an indication that Caesar let his lackeys take bribes. Now, of course, that wasn't one of the reasons they gave, but here it's what he's saying. And he's saying that's incredible hypocrisy. Is it all right for us that killed someone for allowing bribes? Shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes? I love that verb, contaminate. Almost as though we're making our fingers dirty with base bribes. Base meaning low or evil. But you can really hear the disregard for it in that alliteration of base bribes. So is it right for us to make our own hands dirty with bribes and sell the mighty space? Mighty here, not just strong, but more like important or even large. The space of our large honors. There's that word honor again. Large honors means like great reputations. So it's almost as though their reputations, their honors, are like a great building, like a cathedral. And he's saying it's wrong to sell off the space of it, its largeness, to sell it in exchange for so much trash, Trash literally like garbage, the bribe money. What do we need with that gold? It's nothing. So much trash as may be grasped thus. Thus meaning like this. It indicates a gesture for the actor. So it's a grasping motion for him to make. So if our honors are huge, he's saying we're really going to sell them for what we can hold in our tiny little hands? That garbage? That would be the height of hypocrisy. We killed this incredibly important guy for accepting bribery and now we're going to accept bribes ourselves? I had rather be a dog and bay the moon than such a Roman. 
Bay the moon, howl at the moon. I'd rather be a dog howling at the moon than such a Roman, than that kind of Roman. And Cassius has heard enough. He interrupts him. He says, Brutus, bait not me. Bait means like harass or persecute. Some editors will actually change this to bay to echo what Brutus just said. Remember that idea of dogs surrounding someone as they attack it? But I think it's fine to keep this original sense. Don't you attack me. I'll not endure it. I won't put up with it. So Cassius isn't even responding to the substance of Brutus's accusations. Notice again, this is what humans do. When humans are attacked, they go fight or flight. They don't think about the reasons. And see, what is Brutus trying to do again? He's trying to explain to someone why they're wrong. That always works well. It's like, well, it would be the height of hypocrisy to do this. And Cassius responds, don't you attack me. Which is how real people in the real world respond to being attacked. They respond emotionally, not reasonably. You forget yourself to hedge me in. I like that phrase, forget yourself. In other words, you don't behave like yourself to hedge me in. Hedge me in literally like being surrounded by a hedge, being fenced in or limited. Don't you tell me what to do. I am a soldier, I, older in practice, abler than yourself to make conditions. Older in practice means something like, I've been doing this longer. I'm more experienced. I'm a more experienced soldier than you are. Abler than yourself to make conditions. Make conditions here means something like manage affairs. So I know better than you what to do. Don't attack me. And notice what is happening to Cassius's language, much like what just happened to Brutus's language. We get all this enjambment and choppiness. You forget yourself to hedge me in. Abler than yourself to make conditions. It's jumping from line to line. There's also another technique being used here called caesura, appropriately enough, in a play called Julius Caesar. It's from the word for cut. It's also where we get caesarean section, which supposedly Julius Caesar was born in. It's all very complicated. But a caesura is when you stop midline and start a new thought. And that's all over this speech. So as he's flying out of control and being attacked, his language is doing the same thing. And Brutus responds emotionally too. He says, go to. Go to is a great little expression meaning something like, come on or oh please, give me a break. You are not Cassius. Actually, you aren't abler than me. Cassius snaps back, I am. And Brutus says, I say you are not. They're fighting like school kids here. Maybe they actually were school kids together. I don't know. R2, am not. R2, am not. And finally Cassius has to break it up. He says, urge me no more. Urge here means provoke. Like stop provoking me. Don't provoke me any further. I shall forget myself. Remember Cassius just said to Brutus, you forget yourself? Well, now he says, I'm going to forget myself. I'm going to forget who I am. I'm not going to behave like myself usually. I may attack you. Have mind upon your health. Oh, this is really interesting. Have mind upon, which means consider or think of your health. Think of your own safety here. Tempt me no farther. Tempt means test or provoke. So don't test me. Don't provoke me anymore. It's a lot like urge me no more at the beginning of his little speech here. It starts with urge me no more and tempt me no farther, which basically means the same thing. But he's starting to threaten his life here. So this is as angry as we have ever seen Cassius in the play. He's at the point of pulling a knife on him. And this is how Brutus dismisses him. He says, away, slight man. This is just withering. Remember this word slight? We just saw Antony talk about Lepidus using this same word. It means like insignificant or unworthy. Get away from me, you nobody. And this is just shattering to Cassius. This very superior, very mean Brutus. Is this the real Brutus? Forget that noble guy. Is it this guy who looks down on everybody and thinks he's better? And Cassius is shocked. He doesn't attack him again. He says, is it possible? Like, is it possible you would call me that? And now that the mask is off, Brutus just goes in on him. He says, hear me, for I will speak. 
Must I give way and room to your rash collar? Must I give way means, do I have to make space? In other words, just let you do whatever you want. I just have to move out of the way and give you room to your rash collar. Collar is anger, and rash means that it's easily provoked. So I just have to let you throw your tantrum? Shall I be frighted when a madman stares? Shall I be frighted? Do I have to be scared when a madman, a crazy person, stares? Stares here may mean looks crazy. So I just have to put up with all this stuff? And Cassius has something very similar to that, is it possible? He says, oh, you gods, you gods, must I endure all this? Endure meaning put up with. He literally turns to the gods and says, I have to put up with this? It's an incredible indignity for me to be called all these names. A madman? And Brutus isn't letting up at all. He says, all this? I, more. You have to endure this? Yeah, you have to endure even more than that. Yes, I. You're going to take it and like it. Fret till your proud heart break. Fret meaning like express incredible anger, just like rage all over the place. Go crazy until your proud heart breaks. Knock yourself out. And not proud in a good sense either, like the sin of pride. You're so proud, well just go on and on until your heart breaks. And you can really hear the language of that. It has that three stressed syllable ending. Four if you include the word fret. Fret till your proud heart break. Go to town, guy. Beat yourself up. Go show your slaves how choleric you are and make your bondmen tremble. So don't talk to me this way. If you're angry, go show your slaves how choleric you are. There's that word choler again, angry or irritable. Go show them. Make your bondmen tremble. Bondmen are like serfs or slaves. Another word for that. Make them tremble with your anger, not me. Must I budge? Like, do I have to flinch? This is the equivalent of that word tremble. Go do it to your slaves. I'm not going to budge. Must I observe you? Not observe in our modern sense. Here it's more like defer to or kind of wait on you. Should I just stand here and let you do that? Must I stand and crouch under your testy humor? Do I have to stand here and crouch? Which is something like cringe or bow under. Not literally under, but here meaning something like according to your testy humor. Testy humor means irritable temperament. So I have to cringe whenever your temper is a little out of control. And you can see that rhetorical pattern of must I budge, must I observe you, must I stand and crouch. He's using those same rhetorical skills to get one over on Cassius. And he's really worked up now. He says, by the gods, you shall digest the venom of your spleen, though it do split you. So by the gods, I swear by the gods, you shall digest the venom of your spleen. Digest here like swallow down the venom of your spleen. This goes back to those old ideas of medicine, that your temperament came from your organs. And in this case, the spleen was believed to be the seat of bad temper and irritability. So when you say someone is full of spleen, that means they're very irritable because of this poison that was released by the spleen. And he's saying, instead of spitting it at me, you're going to have to swallow it down, though it do split you. Even if it splits you in two, I'm going to make you swallow it all down. For from this day forth, I'll use you for my mirth. Yea, for my laughter when you are waspish. Ooh, he says, I'll use you for my mirth. Mirth being like joking or humor. Yea, yes, for my laughter when you are waspish. Waspish meaning angry or irritable, like an angry wasp. But this is an adjective that's used a lot to describe angry women in particular. So he's saying that he respects him so little that he's going to laugh at him when he's angry. And Cassius is shattered by this. He says, is it come to this? Like this is what it's come to? You calling me names? But Brutus isn't done yet. He says, you say you are a better soldier. Let it appear so. Make your vaunting true, and it shall please me well. So let it appear so. If it's actually so, 
Well then, make your vaunting true. Prove your boasting true, and it shall please me well. Like, prove to me you're a better soldier. In other words, fight me. I'll be happy if you actually just prove it, but don't say it. For mine own part, I shall be glad to learn of noble men. Learn of here means learn from. This is incredibly sarcastic and nasty. I'll be glad to learn all about soldiering from noble men. And to see Brutus using the word noble sarcastically is really unsettling. Remember, nobility and honor matter so much to him, and he's implying here that Cassius isn't noble. He just thinks he is. I'll be glad to learn all about soldiering from noble people like yourself. Me, 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 me. And Cassius starts to fight back. He says, you wrong me every way. You wrong me, Brutus. There's that same phrase again. He's trying to bring it back. I said an elder soldier, not a better. He has a point. He said elder, in other words, more experienced. Not a better soldier. Did I say better? There's something sort of pathetic here. He's like, why are you attacking me like this? I never said better. But Brutus won't hear it. He says, if you did, I care not. Like, I don't care what word you used. Cassius is starting to get angry again. He says, when Caesar lived, he durst not thus have moved me. So when Caesar were alive, he wouldn't have dared to move me, in other words, to provoke me thus, in this way, with these words. So not even Caesar would have said these things to me. And Brutus says, peace, peace. Like, shut up, be quiet. You durst not so have tempted him. He's deliberately echoing the line that Cassius just said. He said, Caesar durst not thus have moved me. And Brutus responds, well, you durst not. You wouldn't have dared. So, which is the equivalent of thus, in this way, to have tempted him. Tempted again, meaning like provoked or tested or tried the patience of him. So if I'm attacking you, it's only because you're attacking me. And you never would have tried that on Caesar. He's really trying to undermine Cassius's bravery. Cassius replies, I durst not. I wouldn't have dared to. Brutus responds, no. Cassius repeats it. What, durst not tempt him? And Brutus responds, for your life you durst not. That's that durst not phrase, repeated no less than five times in six lines. He durst not thus have moved me. You durst not so have tempted him. I durst not? No. What, durst not tempt him? For your life you durst not. He wouldn't have dared? Well, you wouldn't have dared. I wouldn't have dared? No. I wouldn't have dared? You wouldn't have dared. You can really hear that cool back and forth rhythm. And that choppy language starts to get Cassius really riled up. He says, do not presume too much upon my love. Do not presume upon means don't count on or make assumptions on my love. Don't just assume that you can get away with this because we're friends. I may do that I shall be sorry for. I may do something that I'll be sorry for. I may say something or even attack you in a way that I'll be sorry for it later. But Brutus takes his cue from that line. I may do that I shall be sorry for. He says you have done that you should be sorry for. This is a level of wit that you usually just see in Shakespeare's comedies. But here it's in the middle of a very serious fight. Cassius says, I might do something I'm going to be sorry for. And Brutus says, you've already done something you should be sorry for. Presumably talking about the bribes. And he goes on to wither Cassius. He says, there is no terror, Cassius, in your threats. For I am armed so strong in honesty that they pass me by as the idle wind, which I respect not. So I'm not afraid of your threats. They're going to do something you're sorry for. Why? For I am armed so strong in honesty. Armed here in the sense of armored or protected. I'm protected so strongly by honesty that they, his threats, pass by me as the idle wind. Idle here being like trivial or stupid. Like it doesn't affect me. It's just like a breeze blowing by me, which I respect not. Respect not exactly in our modern sense. It means more like pay attention to. I don't pay attention to the wind. I'm so honest. I'm not going to pay attention to your stupid threats. Look, this is definitely a mean thing to say, but to me, it's also very reminiscent of something that Caesar said. Remember right before they assassinated him, he had that thing about, I am constant as the northern star. I'm better than all you guys. 
Well, now Brutus is saying, I'm armed so strong in honesty that your threats mean nothing to me. They're just like the wind off of armor. It's a little scary to see in Brutus, this extreme self-regard. And then this scene takes an amazing turn. He says, I did send to you for certain sums of gold, which you denied me, for I can raise no money by vile means. Oh, this isn't just about Cassius's bribes. There's a backstory to all this. I always feel like whenever I get in a fight with someone, it's because something else happened in their day or something else happened in the past. So we're not fighting about the thing we're fighting about. We're fighting about something else entirely. We're just not saying it. So here it comes out. I did send to you. I sent a message to you asking for certain sums of gold. Oh, he wanted money from Cassius, which you denied me for I can raise no money by vile means. Vile meaning like shameful or not noble. You know, like the way Cassius raises money with bribes. So Brutus doesn't have money for his army because he has to do it exactly the right way. It's mean too because he's saying, I'm sure you raise money by vile means, but I can't do that. I'm too honest. By heaven, I had rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to wring from the hard hands of peasants their vile trash by any indirection. By heaven, I swear by heaven, I had rather coin my heart. Coin here means use like a mint or make coins from. My own heart and drop my blood for drachmas. I love the sound of that. The alliteration of drop and drachmas. The verb drop here means spill out in drops. So remember drachmas from Caesar's will? It's that small Greek coin, sort of like a penny. He's saying he would rather use his blood instead of those drachmas. So each drop would be a single coin. He'd rather take that part of his heart and his blood than to wring. Ring being like twist away, here meaning steal or take dishonestly, from the hard hands of peasants. Why are their hands hard? Because they work with their hands all day. So he doesn't want to steal from their hands their vile trash. Trash again being that kind of filthy, dirty money. And notice we've seen all these words before very recently. Vile means, vile trash. And earlier in this exchange, we saw him talk about money, especially bribe money, as trash by any indirection. Indirection is trickery or kind of devious methods. So he refuses to use anything that even smells of dishonesty to raise money, and he really needs money. So this is the first time we're starting to see why Brutus is so under stress. He's got this big army, and because of his supposed moral principles, he doesn't know how to pay for it. And this is classic Brutus, because Brutus is not a practical person. He's an idealistic person. He doesn't live even slightly in the real world. So because he has these absurdly high standards, he's running out of cash, and that's making him desperate. And then there's this weird phrase. He says, I did send to you for gold to pay my legions, which you denied me. And what's weird about this is that it's almost an exact echo of what he just said. Before he said, I did send to you for certain sums of gold, which you denied me. So that's another one of those cool rhetorical repetition tricks. I did send. I sent you a message asking for gold to pay my legions, which you denied me. Was that done like Cassius? There's some echo there of that like myself or like yourself that they used earlier. Is that the kind of thing that Cassius used to do? Should I have answered Caius Cassius so? Like, would I have responded to you that way? If you asked me for gold. And notice he uses his full name here to really rub it in. When Marcus Brutus grows so covetous to lock such rascal counters from his friends, be ready, gods, with all your thunderbolts. And see, he uses his own full name when Marcus Brutus grows so covetous, so greedy or grasping, as to lock such rascal counters from his friends. Lock meaning lock away or keep for himself. Such rascal. Rascal here meaning like worthless. And then counters are like imitation coins in the sense of counterfeits. 
you'd kind of use them as placeholders or for figuring out equivalents if you were doing large sums at the time. So they're like little wooden or cheap metal coins. So if I would keep this worthless cash from my own friends, well then, be ready gods with all your thunderbolts. He's wishing the gods would strike him dead, throw all of the thunderbolts at him, if he does that. Dash him to pieces. Dash meaning like smash or break. So they've been having this like 10 minute angry yelling fight in this tent, and finally Brutus has revealed what's going on. He asked him for money, and Cassius didn't give him money. And Cassius is confused. He says, I denied you not. Is that what we're talking about? And Brutus responds, you did. Cassius says, I did not. And his explanation is kind of funny. He says, he was but a fool that brought my answer back. So the guy who brought you my response was just an idiot. And then he says, Brutus hath rived my heart. Rived means split or cut in two. You've cut my heart in two. A friend should bear his friend's infirmities. But Brutus makes mine greater than they are. A friend should bear, in other words, put up with or allow or even forgive his friend's infirmities. Infirmities usually mean sicknesses, but here it's like his faults or his failing. But Brutus makes mine greater than they are. Like, yeah, I may have taken some bribes, but I didn't do this to you. And there's a little bit of evasion here, too, with that thing that, you know, the guy who brought my answer back didn't know what he was talking about. And then he sort of seems to kind of admit to it with these infirmities. It's really unclear whether he actually refused him or not. Cassius is a little bit of a squirmer. But when Cassius says, you make my infirmities greater than they are, Brutus has another one of these witty comebacks. He says, I do not till you practice them on me. Practice on is like carry out or bring them to bear on me. Like, I don't make your infirmities any greater than they are until you start turning them on me. Cassius still doesn't quite understand what's going on. He says, you love me not. Like, why are you still treating me like this? You don't like me at all. And Brutus has another witty response. He says, I do not like your faults. Cassius says, you don't love me? Brutus says, it's not that I don't love you. I just don't like your faults. And Cassius in turn takes his cue from that word faults. He says, a friendly eye could never see such faults. So if you were a real friend, you would never be able to see those faults in me. And Brutus, again, more wit, he picks up on that friendly eye. He says, a flatterer's would not, though they do appear as huge as high Olympus. A flatterer's eye is what's implied. So the only way I wouldn't see these faults is if I was flattering you, if I was pretending with you, though they do appear, even if they did appear to be as huge as high Olympus. Olympus being the tallest mountain in Greece, supposedly the home of the gods. So if you want me to flatter you, then I can forgive any of your faults, even if they're giant faults. Which seems to imply that Brutus thinks they are giant faults. And finally Cassius just breaks down. He says, come Antony, and young Octavius, come. Revenge yourselves alone on Cassius, for Cassius is a weary of the world. Here comes the drama queen, Cassius. He's calling on Antony and Octavius, their enemies, to revenge themselves alone on Cassius. Just take revenge on me. Just Cassius, not Brutus, not any of the other conspirators. Why? For Cassius is a weary of the world. He's tired of living in the world. Hated by one he loves, braved by his brother, checked like a bondman, all his faults observed, set in a notebook, learned and conned by rote, cast into my teeth. And you can really hear the rhythm of this section. These short phrases and those verbs, hated, braved, checked, observed, set, learned, conned, cast. It's really striking language. Why does he want to leave the world? Because he's hated by someone that he loves. He's braved, in other words, defied or disputed by his own brother, by Brutus. And you can hear those sounds, braved and brother. The other word that would fit in there is Brutus. But Shakespeare didn't have the line space to say braved by his brother Brutus. 
And that's getting a little silly. That's getting to like the Midsummer Mechanicals play. What else is he? Checked like a bondman. Checked meaning scolded or rebuked. Like a bondman, like a slave, a serf. Remember before Brutus was saying, go yell at your slaves? Well, now Cassius is saying, I feel like a slave because you're yelling at me like one. All his faults observed. Observed meaning like noted and highlighted. So every single tiny one of my faults is being highlighted by you. And not only observed, set in a notebook, written down in a notebook, and then learned and conned, conned meaning memorized, by rote, by repetition. So it's as though Brutus was taking notes of every little thing he did wrong, wrote it down, and then memorized it all. Why? To cast into my teeth. Which means something like our phrase, throw in my face. You memorized all these things so that you could throw them in my face later when you wanted to. Oh, I could weep my spirit from mine eyes. Spirit, almost like his soul or the thing that gives him life. He's saying he's so sad that he could cry his soul out of his eyes. It's a really cool image. And then because he's Cassius, he has to threaten to die again. He says, there is my dagger and here my naked breast. So there's my knife. Here's my naked breast. In other words, his chest exposed. It seems like he's actually handing his dagger over to Brutus and opening his shirt for him to stab him. Within, a heart dearer than Pluto's mine, richer than gold. Well, this is a little over the top. Within, within my chest, there is a heart that's dearer than Pluto's mine. Dearer meaning more valuable than the mine of Pluto. This is a little confusing and seems to indicate that Shakespeare didn't totally know his Greek mythology. Pluto is the god of the underworld, who doesn't really seem to have a mind to speak of, unless you count under the earth. What he might be referring to here is Plutus, who is the god of wealth. So he's saying that his heart is more valuable than the most valuable mine, richer than gold. If thou beest a Roman, take it forth. So if you really are a Roman, take it forth, cut my heart out. I that denied thee gold will give my heart. So that's how this is tied in. Brutus wanted gold from him? Well, he's saying my heart is more valuable than gold, maybe because it's full of love. Since I apparently denied you gold, instead I'll give you my heart, which is worth even more. It's a pretty cool antithesis of denied thee gold, give my heart. And then the kicker, strike as thou didst at Caesar. For I know when thou didst hate him worst, thou lovest him better than ever thou lovest Cassius. Oh, Cassius. He's saying, strike as you did at Caesar. Stab me in the heart exactly like you stabbed Caesar. For I know when thou didst hate him worst. So at the moment you hated him the most, maybe when you stabbed him, you still loved him better than you ever loved me. Oh, buddy. So after Cassius makes another one of his abortive attempts to die, Brutus seems to be really moved by this. In fact, he cuts off his line, he interrupts this long speech, and he says, sheath your dagger. Because he's been offering Brutus the dagger to cut out his heart. And Brutus says, just take it back. Be angry when you will. It shall have scope. Be angry when you will means be angry whenever you want to. It shall have scope. Your anger will have room to express itself. This is actually nice. He's saying, get angry whenever you want to. Do what you will. Dishonor shall be humor. Do what you will. Do whatever you want. Dishonor. In other words, dishonorable behavior shall be humor. I'll take that behavior as just some whim of yours, some bad temper you happen to be in at the moment. Even if you're a jerk to me, I'll just treat it like a bad mood. Oh, Cassius, you are yoked with a lamb that carries anger as the flint bears fire, who much enforced shows a hasty spark and straight is cold again. You are yoked. Yoked here means partnered, almost like two animals that are in a single plow harness together because they really are partnered together. They plan the assassination together. They're fighting together now. He's saying you're partnered with a lamb. In other words, someone who's really calm and docile, not the usual animal you'd use on a plow. 
But Brutus is saying that he himself is Cassius's partner, and he's just a lamb. He doesn't get that angry, although we just saw him get angry. He says, I carry anger like the flint bears fire. The flint rock, which you use to light a fire. Well, he's saying it holds fire, who much enforced. Enforced means acted on by force. So struck, like you do with a flint. You're trying to cause a spark. He says it shows a hasty spark when it's much enforced, when it's hit hard. And straight, right away, straight away, is cold again. So that's what Brutus is saying happened. I'm really very calm. I'm like that flint. I have fire inside of me. And when you hit me really hard, a spark is going to come out. But after that spark, it's not like the flint lights on fire. It's cold again. There's no more fire there. I'm already over it. But Cassius is still not quite over it. He says, Hath Cassius lived to be but mirth and laughter to his Brutus when grief and blood ill-tempered vexeth him? So he's like, wait, buddy, you can't just like pawn that off. Hath Cassius lived? In other words, have I survived this long only to be mirth and laughter? Remember, that was exactly the phrase that Brutus used about him, that I'm going to use you as a source of joking and laughter to his Brutus when grief and blood ill-tempered vexeth him. Blood ill-tempered means like an unbalanced temperament. Again, it's that ancient medical idea that your fluids actually had to be balanced within the body. So when your blood is ill-tempered, that means you're out of sorts and angry. And that's what vexeth him. Vexeth means troubles or torments him. And the hymn probably refers to Cassius himself. So Cassius is saying, when I'm just in a bad mood, when I'm kind of ill-tempered, when I'm in grief, you're going to use that as an excuse to laugh at me? But Brutus picks up on that ill-tempered phrase and says, when I spoke that, I was ill-tempered too. When I spoke that, when I said you'd be a mirth and laughter, well, that's just because I was ill-tempered too. I was in a bad mood. It isn't your fault. Let's make up. And Cassius is actually really moved by that admission. He says, do you confess so much? You actually confess that much that you were ill-tempered? Give me your hand. And Brutus has a really sweet reply. He says, and my heart too. Not only am I going to give you my hand, I'm going to give you my heart. Aww. This is actually sort of a sweet callback to when Cassius just offered his heart to Brutus, his literal heart. And now Brutus is offering his figurative heart. He's saying, not only am I going to shake your hand, I love you, man. This is an incredible kind of seesaw of a scene because it started angry. It got furious in the middle. They said the worst things in the world to each other and they've made up in a really sweet way. But it does let you see how volatile this relationship is and all the external stresses that are being put on it right now. And Cassius sort of gets carried away. He says, oh, Brutus. And Brutus says, what's the matter? And Cassius maybe wipes away a tear and says, have not you loved to bear with me when that rash humor which my mother gave me makes me forgetful? This is a real whiplash from where we were like five minutes ago. Have not you love enough? In other words, do you have enough love in your heart to bear with me, to put up with me, when that rash humor, rash humor like quick flaring temperament, which my mother gave me, So it's kind of womanish. He almost is agreeing with what Brutus called him before, waspish. He's saying he gets that irritable temper from his mother. So he's saying, can you put up with me when that bad temper from my mom makes me forgetful? Forgetful seems to imply forgetful of how I should respect you. And Brutus replies, yes, Cassius. And from henceforth, when you are over earnest with your Brutus, he'll think your mother chides and leave you so. He's saying, yeah, I can forgive you. From henceforth, from now on, when you are over earnest with your Brutus... In other words, when you're sort of too serious or too intense with me, he says, you're Brutus, which is very sweet. So when you act up a little bit, well, then he, Brutus, will just think that your mother chides. Your mother is the one who's scolding me because you got that temperament from her and leave you so. Leave you so sort of like leave it at that. So Brutus is saying, I can forgive you. And from now on, whenever you act up, I'll just assume it's this bad temperament you have from your mother. So it's a really nice, weird reconciliation at the end of this very worked up argument. 
You've probably had arguments like this, probably with someone you do love, a parent or a significant other, where you're as angry at them as you've ever been, and afterwards it's all left behind and you just hug and hug. So they've made up, they're ready to go, and now comes one of the strangest little scenes that Shakespeare ever wrote. I swear to God. It's usually cut, and you'll see why. Just as these two guys have made up, in comes a character who's identified only as the poet. And of course, he's not the first poet we've seen in this play. We've also seen Cinna the poet. When we last saw Cinna the poet, he was in several pieces. But this is an entirely new guy. And it's a role that, in the original Plutarch source, is an entirely different character, a guy named Marcus Favonius. Now, what a poet is doing in Turkey with the Roman armies, I have no idea. There's one theory that this is actually Shakespeare's entry in what's known as the Poets' War, or the War of the Theatres, which I can only describe as being sort of the Elizabethan version of the 90s-era East Coast-West Coast rap battles, except nobody really died to speak of. You have two sets of poets and playwrights who are writing what are essentially diss tracks in all of their plays. And on one side, it's mostly Ben Jonson, and the other side is these guys Marston and Decker. And so every play they write, there's a new mean thing about the other side. You actually see this in the play Shakespeare's going to write after this one, Hamlet. You know that weird little discussion, also usually cut, about the children's theaters? Well, that same discussion goes on to mention this poet's war, even though, of course, that also has nothing to do with medieval Denmark. This may be Shakespeare putting in another cool kind of contemporary reference for his friends in the theater. But when we see it today or read it, it comes off very strange. So you have this poet suddenly bursting into the tent, and he's saying, Let me go in to see the generals. So he's trying to get past Lucilius and Titinius, who are supposed to guard the tent. He says, There is some grudge between them. Tis not meet they be alone. Tis not meet means it's not appropriate or fitting for them to be alone together when they have this grudge. What the poet cares, I do not know. And it's also really unclear exactly who this is supposed to be satirizing. And Lucilius interrupts him in the verse line. He says, you shall not come to them. But the poet is defiant. He says, nothing but death shall stay me. Stay meaning like prevent or delay or hold back. So you're going to have to kill me to stop me from going in. And Cassius doesn't know what's going on. He says, how now? What's the matter? How now being sort of the equivalent of what's up or hey, how's it going? So he sort of wants to hear what the guy has to say. And the poet says, for shame, you generals. What do you mean? Not what do you mean in our modern sense. What do you mean, like, what are you doing, or what do you intend to do? What are you doing with this fighting? And then he has a little bit of a poem, because after all, he is a poet. He says, Love and be friends as two such men should be, for I have seen more years, I'm sure, than ye. So two such men, two men like you, should be friends and love each other. Why? For I have seen more years. In other words, I am older, I'm sure, than ye, than you are. Trust me, I'm older, be friends. We should note, this is a terrible poem. And Cassius immediately calls him on it. He says, Ha ha, how vilely doth this cynic rhyme. So he actually laughs at him. How vilely, how wretchedly or awfully doth this cynic rhyme. Cynic not quite in our modern sense. It means something more like critic or someone who criticizes other people. In this case, he's criticizing their argument. But Cassius's criticism is, This is a terrible rhyme, be and ye. Or more to the point, the poetry itself is just terrible. And Brutus is actually sort of angry at it. He says, Get you hence, Syrah. Get you hence means get out of here, or get away from here, Syrah. And Syrah is a title for anyone of lower rank, and it can be kind of a derogatory term, which is definitely how he intends it. Saucy fellow, hence. Saucy meaning like presumptuous or insolent, like you shouldn't even be here. Hence, get out of here. So for all of Brutus's talk about how he's a lamb, he's really irritable, even now, after they've made peace. And now Cassius is actually the peacemaker. He says, bear with him, Brutus. Bear with him, put up with him. Tis his fashion. 
You know, it's his way. It's just his manner of acting. You know, old poet. But Brutus is still really unnecessarily angry. He says, I'll know his humor when he knows his time. I'll know his humor. In other words, I'll be understanding about his weird behavior or his weird temperament when he knows his time. In other words, when he knows the right time to act like this. In their tent, while they're having this important conversation, his timing is really bad. I'm not going to bear with him. And then he has this little aside. What should the wars do with these jigging fools? What should the wars do? Like, why should this serious military moment have to deal with these jigging fools? And jigging refers to a kind of dance. Either the dancing or the music, the song that it's based on. Which suggests that he's mocking the poet's rhythm and rhyming. So we're trying to fight a war here. Why do we have to deal with these rhyming idiots? And he turns to the man again and says, Companion, hence... Companion's a little bit of a strange term of address, but it's another derogatory term, sort of like fellow or friend, used ironically again, companion. Hence, get out of here, there's that word again. And Cassius, seeing this isn't going away, and Brutus is really angry, finishes his line. He says, away, away, be gone. And off goes the poet, and that's the end of that. And we don't know if Shakespeare is attacking a specific poet of his time. Maybe there was a guy who was known for, like, drunkenly busting into important places where he shouldn't be but it's a weird little artifact just sort of thrown in here. Compared to someone like Johnson, his contemporary, Shakespeare has far fewer topical references, references to his own time. You know, like we'd have in a sitcom today or something, which I think is pretty smart on his part because it means that his plays are going to last longer. What do people care about the poet's war today? So now that that weird moment has passed, Brutus is getting down to business. He says, Lucilius and Titinius, bid the commanders prepare to lodge their companies tonight. Bid the commanders, in other words, tell the commanders, to prepare to lodge, lodge meaning encamp, or bed down, their companies tonight. So both armies are going to camp here tonight together. And Cassius follows that up. He says, and come yourselves, and bring Messala with you immediately to us. So after you give the lodging order, you, Lucilius and Titinius, should come and bring Messala with you. Messala is another new character. He's a Roman aristocrat and general who was also prescribed. He was on the list of the triumvirate of Antony and Octavius and Lepidus for some alleged connections to the assassination. So evidently he's fled Rome and joined up with these armies. So bring him with you immediately to us, so we're all going to meet up together. And Lucilius and Titinius go off to take care of that. And Brutus is still kind of fuming, and Cassius doesn't quite know why. So Brutus turns to his servant Lucius, whom you may remember from the beginning of the play, and says, Lucius, a bowl of wine. Probably not like a literal bowl, more like a goblet, a cup. Bring me some wine. He's in a drinking mood. And Cassius is still a little shaken. He says, I did not think you could have been so angry. So between his yelling at Cassius and his really going after the poet for no particular reason, Cassius is still amazed that this friend of his could be so angry. And Brutus is still very cryptic about this. He says, oh Cassius, I am sick of many griefs. Sick of like, I'm afflicted by many different griefs. And griefs could be grievances or it could be literal, as we'll see, griefs. And Cassius replies, of your philosophy, you make no use if you give place to accidental evils. Of your philosophy, remember this Stoic and Epicurean split between the two guys? So Brutus's philosophy is Stoicism, which is this Greek philosophy that preaches self-control over your emotions. So you're not making any use of your Stoicism if you give place, give place meaning make way for or allow in, these accidental evils. Accidental like happening by chance. You know, bad things happen all the time. But if you let them bother you, then you're not much of a Stoic. And Brutus begs to differ. He says, no man bears sorrow better. So no man alive puts up with sorrow better than I do. And then he reveals what's been going on the whole time. Remember earlier in his argument with Cassius, it wasn't just that he was angry with Cassius for bribes. He was also running out of money for his army. 
And then he drops the hammer here, which is he reveals what it's all been about, why he's been so irritable. He says, Portia is dead. And notice how Shakespeare drops that right at the end of the verse line. There's that break after no man bears sorrow better, and then suddenly Portia is dead. And Cassius is blown backwards by it. They've been talking for 20, 25 minutes now. He says, huh? Portia? And Brutus answers, she is dead. Again, these very curt little statements. This is shocking news. And Cassius doesn't know what to do. He says, how escaped I killing when I crossed you so? How escaped I? How did I escape or avoid being killed when I crossed you so? When I challenged or confronted you in this way? Or so much? So when we were just arguing, I think someone whose wife just died would have just killed me out of anger. He says, oh, insupportable and touching loss. Insupportable means like intolerable, like you can't deal with it. And touching loss. Touching like affecting or grievous. This is an incredible, awful loss. And he asks, upon what sickness? Upon meaning because of or as a result of what sickness? Like what did she die of? And then Brutus answers, and wait for this one, it's a hell of an answer. He says, impatient of my absence and grief that young Octavius with Mark Antony have made themselves so strong, for with her death that tidings came. With this she fell distract, and her attendants absent, swallowed fire. Dear God, Portia. Okay, let's go back and look at the meaning, but dear God, Portia. So impatient of my absence. Impatient meaning frustrated or restless of my absence because of my absence. And grief that young Octavius with Mark Antony have made themselves so strong. So grief at the news that they've become such a strong opponent for Brutus, because she's sort of rooting for him from Rome still. And then this little parenthetical, for with her death that tidings came. Tidings meaning news. So they got news of the strengthening of Antony and Octavius at the same time that they got news of Portia's death. So with this, the impatience and the grief, she fell distract. Distract usually actually meaning crazy or insane. And remember, Portia was pretty excitable in the first place, but it seems like this news has really sent her over the edge and the absence of news from Brutus. Remember, they might have been away for at least a year at this point, so she kind of lost her mind and her attendants absent, you know, being left alone. She swallowed fire. Dear God, Portia. Now, not like she worked at a circus and swallowed fire. She probably picked up like a coal from the fire and swallowed it, which takes, let's just say, some self-control. And it's an incredible contrast with Brutus. You know, a guy who has to think everything through, who has to do everything the right way, who's really concerned about what people are going to say about him. Well, his wife just up and did it. That's action. And it's kind of terrifying. Because in a play with all this subterfuge and counterplotting, she just does the deed. But either way, it's totally chilling. I mean, we've almost forgotten about Portia at this point. She was in two scenes earlier. It's probably been at least an hour since we saw her on stage. But this moment really shocks you back in. And it makes it very personal for Brutus now, too. And Cassius is understandably disturbed by this. He says, and died so? She died of that or she died that way? Yeah, I think swallowing fire is probably going to kill you. And Brutus says, even so, just like that. Cassius says, oh, you immortal gods. Yeah, I agree, man. This is intense. And in comes Lucius with that wine that Brutus asked for. And Brutus turns to Cassius and says, speak no more of her. Oof, this is kind of cold. I mean, this is definitely stoic Brutus. We're not going to talk about her anymore. And he says to Lucius, give me a bowl of wine. Give me that goblet. And he goes on, in this I bury all unkindness, Cassius. Unkindness being like offense or ill will. So I'm burying any ill will between us in this cup of wine. And he drinks a kind of toast to him. 
and Cassius returns it. He says, my heart is thirsty for that noble pledge. Pledge is kind of another word for a toast. So it's not that he's thirsty for the wine. His heart is thirsty for the pledge to bury unkindness. How a heart can be thirsty, I do not know. And see, there's that word noble again. But they've really made up. And he says, fill, Lucius, till the wine or swell the cup. Or swell means overrun, almost like the water that goes over the river bank when there's a storm. Swell above the rim of the cup. I cannot drink too much of Brutus's love. I'll drink all this wine if your love is in it. He's really eager to make sure that this is restored, especially after hearing this news about Portia. And just as they asked for a minute ago, in come Titinius and Messala. And Brutus sees them and says, come in, Titinius. Welcome, good Messala. Now sit we close about this taper here and call in question our necessities. So let's sit close about this taper, around this candle here, and call in question. Call in question means like discuss or deliberate about our necessities, what we're going to need for this battle. So presumably they're looking at some kind of document that they need the candlelight. And they start to go over there, but Cassius sort of stays alone. He's still kind of haunted. He says, Portia, art thou gone? He can't believe it. And Brutus specifically told him to not speak any more about this. He says, no more, I pray you. Pray is like beg or ask. So he really wants Cassius to not talk about this. He wants it to be a secret. And he goes on with the planning. He says, Messala, I have here received letters that young Octavius and Mark Antony come down upon us with a mighty power, bending their expedition toward Philippi. This must be the same letters he was talking about where he got news about Portia. So I've got these letters here that Octavius and Antony are coming down on us. They're bearing down on us with a mighty power. Power meaning army or force. And they're bending their expedition, bending like turning or directing their expedition, their military endeavor, toward Philippi. Philippi is a city in northeastern Greece. It's called Philippoi today. It's just about 100 miles from the Turkish border, so not very far away from them. And Masala agrees. He says, myself have letters of the selfsame tenor. Selfsame meaning exactly the same. And tenor, not like the singer, like content or nature. So I have letters that say basically exactly the same thing. And Brutus asks, with what addition? Like, do they say anything else? Masala answers, that by prescription and bills of outlawry, Octavius, Antony, and Lepidus have put to death an hundred senators. So by prescription, prescription being any time you condemn someone to death or exile, and by bills of outlawry. Bills are like posted notices, like wanted posters almost. And outlawry means that a person is an outlaw. So basically they put up a sign saying, this person is outlawed, if you see them, you can kill them. So by doing that, by pricking people down on a list, Octavius, Antony, and Lepidus, the triumvirate, have put to death an hundred senators. I mean, this is huge news. These are the most important people in Rome. And presumably because of their connection to Brutus and Cassius, they're being put to death. I mean, this is all of their colleagues. And Brutus disputes that a little bit. He says, therein our letters do not well agree. So therein, on that count, or as to that particular fact, our letters do not well agree. So he has different information. He says, Mine speak of 70 senators that died by their prescriptions, Cicero being one. So mine, my letters, speak of 70 senators that died, not 100, by their prescriptions, their condemnations. And then he drops the bomb, Cicero is one of them. Remember Cicero, this incredibly well-respected, smart senator? Well, he spoke out against Antony, and apparently he has died. And Cassius, who still isn't over the Portia thing, or the 100 senators, is also hit really hard by this. He says, Cicero won? And Masala repeats that information pretty directly. He says, Cicero is dead, and by that order of prescription. Like, yeah, he is dead, and by exactly the same order of prescription. So it's really starting to sink in that the triumvirate is attacking all their friends. And then Masala broaches another topic, and this is going to be a point of extreme controversy in Shakespeare scholarship. He says, 
had you your letters from your wife my lord had you like did you receive letters from your wife oh maybe he knows something but brutus answers really interestingly no masala oh so now he knows he's in trouble masala says nor nothing in your letters writ of her nothing was written in your letters about her or relating to her and brutus answers nothing masala it seems like he's pretending that he doesn't know his wife is dead and masala realizes he's made a huge mistake by bringing this up he says that methinks is strange methinks means it seems to me yeah that seems really strange to me that she wasn't mentioned and brutus really follows up he says why ask you like why are you asking about her hear you aught of her and yours aught of means anything about so have you heard anything about her in your letters but masala doesn't want to be the one to deliver the news he says no my lord but brutus has him over a barrel he says now as you are a roman tell me true so he's swearing him to tell the truth as he is a roman that's an important oath and masala can't keep it in any further he says then like a roman bear the truth i tell so he takes that cue from brutus's as you are a roman masala turns it around on him he says like a roman act like a roman here to bear the truth i tell bear meaning endure or deal with the truth i'm about to tell you for certain she is dead and by strange manner certain meaning surely or certainly she died in a strange way yeah we know she swallowed fire god portia and then comes brutus's extremely odd response to what we know to be sort of old news to him but which looks like new news he says why farewell portia goodbye portia we must die masala you see these sort of choppy statements here why farewell portia we must die masala like we all have to die sometime with meditating that she must die once i have the patience to endure it now so with meditating sort of thinking about the fact that she must die once she has to die at some point eventually i have the patience to endure it now and you can see that real contrast of once and now so because i'm this great stoic who remembered that she was going to have to die at some point it's easy for me to put up with it now that the news comes it was always going to happen i'm fine and masala is amazed he says even so great men great losses should endure so you can hear that echo of great great men great losses so even so even in this way great men should endure great losses he redoes that word order to get great next to each other great men great losses so that's exactly how romans think a great person should put up with a great loss and cassius is watching all this and he doesn't know quite what to think he says i have as much of this in art as you but yet my nature could not bear it so i have as much of this in art have here means something more like i know or i've studied as much of this as much of this philosophy maybe in art as you in art i think here means something like in theory or kind of intellectually so yeah man i know everybody's gonna die too but yet my nature could not bear it so so my nature my own personality couldn't bear it so couldn't endure it like this which is kind of an echo of masala's even so cassius is bear it so it's like ah this is weird is anyone else noticing this and then brutus has the most if you'll pardon the expression brutal segue in this entire play he says well to our work alive like let's move on to or as to our work alive oh let's move on to this work that has to do with the living or work that's in this world as opposed to dwelling on my dead wife who hasn't been dead for very long and i just found out about 10 seconds ago i mean there's stoicism and then there's stoicism and what are we to make of this weird gesture here i mean some scholars will say that there is a mistake in the text that shakespeare revised it later and didn't take out the first mention of portia's death so he really is finding out about it for the first time here and you'll see some productions that cut one or the other but i don't know i think this is much more revealing about brutus's character than it sometimes gets credit for 
which is not just that he is stoic, but it's really important for him to look stoic. Like he's probably gotten his grieving out of the way earlier, but then he actually lies to Masala so that in front of his troops he can look stoic. Remember again, the outward appearance is incredibly important to him. He has to look noble and look proper. I mean, I get he's noble Brutus and all that, but there's something a little psycho about this moment, like outward appearance above all else. Like Portia at least can feel her emotions. Anyway, after this very unsettling turn, he goes on with their work alive, their important business that has to do with living people. He asks Cassius, what do you think of marching to Philippi presently? Presently meaning immediately at once. Let's go get him. Let's meet him head on. And Cassius replies, I do not think it good. I think it's a bad idea. And Brutus asks, your reason? And Cassius is glad he asked. He says, this it is. In other words, this is my reason. Tis better that the enemy seek us. So I don't want to go meet him. It's better for him to seek us out. So shall he waste his means, weary his soldiers, doing himself offense, whilst we, lying still, are full of rest, defense, and nimbleness. So, in this way, by letting him seek us, our enemy is going to waste his means. Means like his supplies. He's going to weary his soldiers from the marching, presumably, doing himself offense, offense here meaning harm, whilst we, lying still, are full of rest, defense, and nimbleness. I like the contrast of offense and defense. So those soldiers are getting tired out by all the marching, whereas we're resting, and instead of doing ourselves offense, we're doing ourselves defense. We can build up our defenses and nimbleness. We can move however we want, whenever we want. And Brutus's response is typical Brutus cold. He says, good reasons must of force give place to better. So like those are some good reasons, Cassius, but they must of force, meaning necessarily give place to better, yield or make room to better reasons. I like the contrast of good at the beginning of the sentence and better at the end. So make way for my much better reasons. And then he gives them. He says, The people twixt Philippi and this ground do stand but in a forced affection, for they have grudged us contribution. So the people twixt, in other words, between Philippi and this ground, in other words, this place where we are now, do stand but in a forced affection. Forced like imposed against their will. So they don't really like us. They've been forced to like us. And how do we know that? for they have grudged us contribution. In other words, they've only offered us resources grudgingly, like they didn't really want to do it. Oh, he's going back to his gold thing again. So we can't really trust the people in the territory between Philippi and here. The enemy marching along by them, by them shall make a fuller number up, come on refreshed, new added and encouraged, from which advantage shall we cut him off if at Philippi we do face him there, these people at our back. So the enemy is going to have to march from Philippi to here. So if it marches along by them it's going to make a fuller number up by them. In other words, it's going to gain recruits from among those people. It's going to swell its own numbers. And I like that echo of by them at the end of one verse line and by them at the beginning of the next one. So it's marching along by them, like literally by them, and then a different sense of by them, like from them. So Antony and Octavius are going to get recruits from them because those people don't really like us very much. So they're going to come on refreshed. It's not they're going to be worn out. They're going to have the refreshed new reinforcements, new added in other words, reinforced with new troops, and encouraged, maybe encouraged by the addition of the troops. From which advantage shall we cut him off if at Philippi we do face him there? So he's not going to have the advantage of those reinforcements if we go to Philippi and face him there, these people at our back. In other words, behind us. At our back could also mean fighting for us. Like if we go past them instead before Antony and Octavius do, well, maybe they'll join our army. So those are his much better reasons than Cassius's. And Cassius interrupts him. He says, hear me, good brother. Like, that's nice, but listen. And then Brutus stops him. He says, under your pardon. 
which is maybe the most condescending phrase you can imagine. Like, if you'll pardon me, I'm not quite done yet. You must note, besides, that we have tried the utmost of our friends. Our legions are brimful, our cause is ripe. You must note besides, in other words, you have to observe or notice, besides, like also, in addition to what I just said, that we have tried the utmost of our friends. Tried here means something like tested, like we've tested the generosity. And the utmost means like the maximum possible. So we've really gotten everything we can from our friends, you know, our allies. Our legions are brimful, in other words, completely full. And it's that image of a cup that's completely filled, you know, filled to the brim. That's how full their legions are. Our cause is ripe. Ripe meaning like ready for action or ready to go, like a piece of fruit when it's ready to eat. The enemy increaseth every day. So Antony and Octavius's forces are really building up day after day. We, at the height, are ready to decline. At the height here is at the height of our numbers or our powers. So we're at our absolute maximum here. We're ready to decline. And there's a little bit of a contrast there between the enemy's increasing and our readiness to decline. And he says, There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Famous line alert. But as with a lot of famous Shakespeare lines, when people say it as a saying, you hear it totally out of context, and you usually hear like half the line. So the famous line is, there is a tide in the affairs of men, period. But of course, that's not what Brutus is saying. It is a pretty cool image. There's a tide in the affairs of men, like there's a high tide and a low tide. It goes in and out, like that wheel of fortune. So he says, if we take it at the flood, the flood is high tide. Here, it's like the most opportune moment. So if we grab it while the tide is high, that's going to lead us on to fortune. In other words, good fortune. But, he says, omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. Omitted, like missed or neglected. If we miss that tide, all the voyage of their life, they're here being the men, they're here being the men who have the affairs, the whole voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. Bound here like confined or limited to shallows. And it's shallows of fortune. Literally, it's low tide, but it's like bad luck or bad fortune and in miseries. So you get that kind of antithesis of the flood versus the shallows and taken versus omitted. So without those two more lines, that first famous line doesn't make a ton of sense. It is a very cool image, though, of the voyage of life being dependent on grabbing it at a high tide. So he's saying, this is our chance. We're not getting any better. We're only going to get worse from here, and they're going to improve. Now's the time. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current where it serves or lose our ventures. So he's extending that image. On such a full sea. And you can see with those stressed syllables, the full sea. So we're at just such a high tide. We're afloat on it. And we have to take the current when it serves. Serves here means it's favorable to us, or it provides an opportunity to us. So we have to grab that current when it's serving us, or else we'll lose our ventures. Ventures are literally investments in goods to be shipped by sea. So we have this boat full of treasure, and if we don't send it out now into this current at high tide, we're going to get stuck in the shallows, or we're going to lose those ventures entirely. And Cassius must be used to this by now. He has a perfectly good idea, he's a good strategist, and he's a good soldier, and then Brutus thinks he has a better idea, and Brutus has to be right. This is another one of those like six or seven times that Brutus overrules Cassius, and it doesn't go well. Cassius can't do anything. He completes his line. He says, then, with your will, go on. With your will. In other words, with whatever you want to do, go on with it. Be my guest. We'll along ourselves and meet them at Philippi. We'll along. In other words, we'll go along ourselves. We'll bring our army with you. We'll go meet them at Philippi if you think that's such a great idea. So we have a plan. Coincidentally, it's exactly the plan that Brutus wanted to do. It's funny how it always works out that way. And now that that's settled, Brutus says... 
The deep of night has crept upon our talk, and nature must obey necessity, which we will niggard with a little rest. The deep of night, in other words, the middle or the deepest part. Is it midnight already? He says it's crept upon our talk, which means like it snuck up on our talk. Didn't even see it happening. It's very much like an animal sneaking up on you. And he says nature must obey necessity. Necessity here being the need to sleep. You also have that double N of nature and necessity. So we have to obey what our bodies want to do. Which, he says, we will niggard. Okay, yeah, no, this is not a great word. Uh, it, it, uh, it's no longer super usable for obvious reasons. What will usually happen is that in the few places in Shakespeare's play where it appears, you'll change it to something like miser or beggar. It usually means to pay off only a little bit, like a miserly person paying off money they owe just like a penny at a time. So it's as though you owe nature a large debt of sleep, and you just take a little nap to kind of pay it off part way. So he's saying, I'll take a nap, and it ends with this funny exchange. He says to Cassius, there is no more to say. And Cassius finishes that line, no more. Good night. Okay, well, this has certainly been edifying. Cassius gets up to leave, and he says, early tomorrow will we rise, and hence. Hence here means like we'll leave from here. And as he gets up to go, Brutus says, Lucius. And Lucius comes back in. He asks him, my gown? Not like his beautiful ball gown. It's like a robe or a nightgown. Bring in my nightgown, I'm going to take a nap. And Lucius goes off to get it. And he says goodnight to them one by one. He says, farewell, good Messala. Goodnight, Titinius. And finally, noble, noble Cassius. Goodnight and good repose. Ooh, we get two nobles in a row. He must really like him. Goodnight and good repose. Repose meaning rest. And Cassius's reply is, Oh, my dear brother, this was an ill beginning of the night. Ill like bad or unfortunate. Like it was really bad we had to start the night with this terrible argument. Never come such division between our souls. Never here meaning like may it never again. Such division come between our souls. Let it not, Brutus. And Brutus replies, everything is well. I like these short little phrases they keep exchanging. It really kind of quiets the scene down. After all this debate and argument. And they have one final goodbye. Cassius says, Good night, my lord. And Brutus replies, Good night, good brother. I like that echo of good night and good brother. And the other guys who are leaving say, Good night, Lord Brutus. And Brutus says, Farewell, everyone. This is the most elaborate goodbye you've ever seen. It's crazy. But it really gives you a sense of people who have decided they're going into battle. They know it's going to be the big final battle to decide who wins. And so they're kind of bracing for it. Like, we may not see each other much anymore. And everybody else leaves, and Brutus turns to Lucius and says, Give me the gown. And then he asks him this interesting question. He says, Where is thy instrument? I did not know Lucius had an instrument. And Lucius replies, Uh, here in the tent. And then Brutus replies, What, thou speakst drowsily? Drowsily like sleepily. It seems to be a cue to the actor playing Lucius that when he says here in the tent, there should be a little bit of a yawn there. Weird historical side note, by the way. The actor who played Lucius in Orson Welles' famous production later went on to do the voice of the leprechaun in the Lucky Charms commercials. Anyway, there's that. So Brutus notices he's sleepy, and presumably he is. It's like midnight. And he says, Poor knave, I blame thee not. Thou art o'erwatched. Knave is usually used as a derogatory term, sort of like rascal, but here it's probably more of a term of endearment. Like, hey guy, I blame thee not. I don't blame you for being tired. He says you're overwatched, which means tired from staying awake so long. Presumably there's been a lot of stress on these men over the last few weeks, or maybe even months marching around all over the place. So he's too sleepy, and he says, Call Claudius and some other of my men. I'll have them sleep on cushions in my tent. Well, this is interesting. He doesn't want to sleep alone. What is he afraid of? Well, we'll see. So Lucius calls out, Varro and Claudius. And these two guys, Varro and Claudius, show up. Varro says, Calls my lord? Like, does my lord call? And Brutus says, I pray you, sirs, lie in my tent and sleep. He just wants someone there with him. 
It may be I shall raise you by and by on business to my brother Cassius. So I may raise you, in other words, I may wake you up by and by, eventually, before very long, on business to my brother Cassius. Like he may have a message to send Cassius? I wonder if this is a cover for him just wanting someone else in the room with him when he sleeps. But Varro disputes it a little bit. He says, so please you, we will stand and watch your pleasure. So please you, in other words, if it may please you, sir, we will stand and watch your pleasure. Watch here means stay awake. And your pleasure is like in case you want anything. So we'll stay here, we'll stay up. If you need anything, just let us know. We don't have to sleep. But Brutus rejects that. He says, I will not have it so. I don't want you to stay awake. Lie down, good sirs. It may be I shall otherwise bethink me. Otherwise bethink me is like change my mind or decide something else. So they get settled into the tent, and he puts on the robe, and he finds something. And there's this really sort of beautiful moment. He says, look, Lucius, here's the book I sought for so. Sought for so is like was looking for so hard. I guess there was a book he was looking for, and it turns out it was in the pocket all along. He says, I put it in the pocket of my gown. That's where it was. And Lucius answers, I was sure your lordship did not give it me. In other words, didn't give it to me. Maybe that was the working theory before. He's like, did I give you my book? Lucius is like a very put-upon secretary. And Brutus says, bear with me, good boy. I am much forgetful. So bear with me like, you're going to have to put up with me. I am much forgetful. I'm very forgetful. And then he finishes that request about the instrument. He says, canst thou hold up thy heavy eyes a while and touch thy instrument a strain or two? So why are his eyes heavy? In the sense of sleepy. You know, like your eyelids start to droop. Can you hold them up for a while? And touch thy instrument. Touch your, like, play. Touch the strings for a strain or two. A strain is like a melody or a line of music. Just play a little bit for me. And Lucius replies, I, my lord, and it please you. And it means if it please you. And Brutus responds, it does, my boy. I trouble thee too much, but thou art willing. So I trouble thee, I bother you too much, but I know you're okay with doing it. And Lucius says, it is my duty, sir. It's not just that I'm willing, it's actually my job. But Brutus says, I should not urge thy duty past thy might. So I know it's your duty, but I shouldn't urge, in other words, press or push that duty past thy might, like your strength or your physical ability to do it. Like, I know you have to because it's your duty, but I really shouldn't make you do anything you can't do. I know young bloods look for a time of rest. Young bloods, like spirited young people, whose blood is sort of hot and lively. They look for a time of rest, like they hope for, expect, or need a time of rest. Since you get so worked up during the day, you sleep it all off. And Lucius says, I have slept, my lord, already. Like maybe he got a little rest in earlier. And Brutus says, It was well done, and thou shalt sleep again. I will not hold thee long. Hold like detain or keep here. So you'll go right back to sleep again. I'm not going to hold you here very long. If I do live, I will be good to thee. Be good to like reward. If I do live. And that phrase usually means like, I swear by my life. But here it's literally, I may not live past the next few days. So if I survive, I'll reward you for your good work. And so finally Lucius plays a song for him on the instrument. And what's cool here is that the instrument itself is not specifically designated. It seems like maybe it's a string instrument, but we don't know for sure. There's no song text given. There may not even be any words to this song. So there's real freedom when you're doing a production of this play to put anything you want in there. And in some productions, Lucius actually falls asleep like halfway through the song. Like his eyes are too heavy and he just goes to sleep. And Brutus sort of laughs at it. He says, this is a sleepy tune. Like it's actually had the effect of making the guy playing it fall asleep. O murderous slumber, layst thou thy leaden mace upon my boy that plays thee music? Murderous slumber. And why is slumber, sleep, murderous? Well, because a sleeping person kind of looks like they're dead. He says, layst thou, do you lay your leaden mace? Leaden here means heavy, like lead. And a mace is usually a weapon, but here it means like a sheriff's staff. 
because in this time, sheriffs would arrest people by touching them with this special ceremonial mace. It was like the ultimate legal game of tag. So it's like, I hereby arrest you by touching you with this weird mace. So he imagines sleep as a kind of sheriff who's going around arresting people. And in this case, it's Lucius. And this is a little bit of an echo of the end of Hamlet, too, which he's about to write, where he talks about death as a fell sergeant who's going around arresting people. So in this case, he's asking sleep if it's arresting the person that plays sleep music. You also see those cool L's of lace thou and leaden. You really feel the sleepiness in it. So there's that kind of poetic talk to slumber. And then he looks over at Lucius and says, gentle knave, good night. There's that nickname knave again, which is sort of a rascally term of endearment. I will not do thee so much wrong to wake thee. So I won't do you wrong by waking you up. If thou dost nod, thou breakst thy instrument. So if you nod, in other words, if your head nods, it might fall onto your instrument and break it. I'll take it from thee and good boy, good night. There's that same construction again, good boy, good night. So this is sort of like when your kid falls asleep reading and you take the book away from them. Except here it's an instrument. So Lucius sleeps long. The other guys have probably fallen asleep by now. And it's just Brutus alone in the middle of the night again. There's a really deliberate echo here of that moment when we saw him sleepless in the middle of the night in his orchard, thinking about whether to kill Caesar or not. Well, now he's sleepless again. And he picks up the book and says, let me see, let me see. Is not the leaf turned down where I left reading? So it's not the leaf, in other words, the page. Isn't it turned down, like when you dog ear a corner, where I left reading, where I left off, I stopped reading. So it's marked his place. Here it is, I think. So he starts reading the book, and then it gets harder. He says, how ill this taper burns. How ill, how poorly or badly this taper burns, this candle burns. He can't see by it anymore. Something is happening. Well, what's happening? There's someone else in the room. And I don't mean Varro, and I don't mean Claudius, and I don't mean Lucius, and I don't mean the instrument. There's a ghost in the room with him. And it's a ghost that looks a lot like the guy he just killed. Yep, great Caesar's ghost himself. This is a very common trope, by the way, that on the night before the big battle, you see the ghosts of all the people you murdered. There's a great Richard III scene just like this. Brutus looks up and sees him and says, Ha, huh, who comes here? I think it is the weakness of my eyes that shapes this monstrous apparition. So I must have bad eyes. That's what shapes, in other words, creates this monstrous apparition. Not just monstrous, like disgusting looking, but like unnatural or even ominous, like meaning a bad thing. And then he says, it comes upon me like it's coming toward me. Art thou anything? Like, are you a real thing in this world? Art thou some god, some angel or some devil that makes my blood cold and my hair to stare? So what could you be? Could you be a god? Could you be an angel? Could you be a devil? Remember, there's a lot of ghosts on stage at this point in Elizabethan playwriting, but purgatory, which is this place you go before you go to heaven, if you're not quite good enough yet to go in there, where presumably you can have ghosts coming from, because once you get to heaven or hell, that's probably the end of it. That's a Catholic thing. And at least for the last few decades, the English people are Protestant. So if there was a ghost, it was probably an angel or a devil, not the real person's ghost. And some of that gets applied here to this Roman story. He says this ghost makes my blood cold and my hair to stare. I love the sound of that, hair to stare. Now, obviously, hair doesn't have eyes. It can't stare in our modern sense. Here it means something like stand on end. Speak to me what thou art. Tell me what you are. He doesn't believe in ghosts. He wants to know what this thing is. And the ghost has an answer. He says, thy evil spirit, Brutus. So evil spirit could mean something like a demon or like Brutus's evil angel or something. But it could also mean what's called a genius, which is this belief that everyone had a kind of attendant spirit that went along with them, almost like a guardian angel. So the evil spirit here might be like a guardian devil that's going to follow him through life. 
And Brutus cuts him off. He says, why comest thou? Like, what are you doing here? And the ghost answers, to tell thee thou shalt see me at Philippi. And Brutus asks, well, then I shall see thee again? And the ghost is like, did I stutter? I, at Philippi. And Brutus answers, why, I will see thee at Philippi then. He's going to be at this battle, this climactic battle. He's just warning him. And obviously ghosts are cool to have on stage, and they were very common at this time. But what I love here is that the ghost isn't just a ghost. He, in some ways, is a metaphor. It works on both levels. One of the real points of this play is that you can't escape the spirit of Caesar. You can kill the guy, but you're always going to be in his shadow. So by putting him here on stage, you kind of literalize what's going on in Brutus's mind. I can never escape his legacy. I can never escape this great name of Caesar. Everything I do is going to be in his shadow. In the same way that Antony was able to mobilize that spirit, Brutus is kind of incapacitated by it. And the ghost vanishes as quickly as he appeared. And Brutus says, now I have taken heart, thou vanishest. So now that I've taken heart, in other words, gotten myself together, you disappear. Ill spirit, I would hold more talk with thee. So ill spirit, like evil or bad spirit, I would hold more talk with thee. I want to conduct a longer conversation with you. I sort of wonder what he would ask him if he had the chance. Because before he kind of stuttered a little bit like, so Philippi then? I'm going I'm to see you at Philippi? Is it, it going to be Philippi? And the ghost was like, yeah, no, Philippi. I think I was, I think I was pretty clear on this point. So yeah, just Philippi. I'm just, just double checking here. It's going to be Philippi? So I sort of wonder what Brutus would ask him if he had him back. So it's this very strange, creepy interlude in the middle of the night with people sleeping all around. And it passes as soon as it came. And then Brutus cries out. He wakes everybody up. He says, boy, Lucius, Varro, Claudius, sirs, awake, Claudius. And I love this moment because Lucius says, the strings, my lord, are false. And Lucius still isn't quite awake when he says this. His eyes are maybe still closed. He says, uh, the strings, my lord, are false. False meaning out of tune. And Brutus says, he thinks he still is at his instrument. Because remember, Brutus has taken away the instrument. So Lucius may be trying to play nothing at this point. He's like, uh, the strings, yeah, what happened to the instrument? And Lucius is still half asleep. He's talking in his dream. So Brutus says, Lucius, awake. And Lucius finally opens his eyes all the way and says, my lord? So now that Lucius is awake, Brutus asks him, didst thou dream, Lucius, that thou so criedst out? The so here means like in this way. So were you dreaming that you cried out like that? And Lucius responds, my lord, I do not know that I did cry. Like I had no idea I said anything. So he must have been pretty asleep when he said that. Brutus responds, yes, that thou didst. Didst thou see anything? Yeah, in fact, you did cry out. Did you see anything? He wants verification that this ghost was really here. And Lucius replies, nothing, my lord. And Brutus, who is still freaking out from this ghost, says, sleep again, Lucius. He just wants to know that he isn't crazy. And then he turns to Claudius. He says, Sira Claudius. Remember that word Sira, which is something you say to a social inferior? And then he probably turns to Varro and says, fellow thou, awake. Like you there, wake up. And they sort of sleepily say, my lord, my lord, what do you want? And then Brutus asks them, why did you so cry out, sirs, in your sleep? This is kind of news to us if we've just been reading this play. They cried out in their sleep. I wonder what they cried out. And they're confused. They say, did we, my lord? And Brutus says, I, yeah, saw you anything? Again, he is desperate to know if anybody else saw this ghost but him. And Varro replies, no, my lord, I saw nothing. And Claudius says, nor I, my lord. So neither of us saw anything. Well, that's not going to be resolved. So Brutus gives them an order instead. Remember, he kept them around before because he wanted to maybe send a message to Cassius? Well, now he has that message. He says, go and commend me to my brother Cassius. Commend me to is like, give him my regards or send my greetings. And here's the order. Bid him set on his powers betimes before, and we will follow. So bid him, tell him or ask him to set on his powers. 
Sedan is like start marching or advance his powers, his armies, his forces, betimes before. I like this expression. You can hear those hard B sounds repeated, but betimes before means early, in advance of us, and we will follow after him. So presumably it's still pretty close to the middle of the night, but he wants to start the march now. He's anxious. He needs to get to Philippi, especially after this ghost showed up and told him that a big deal was going to happen there. And they say, it shall be done, my lord. And they probably still pretty sleepily go off to tell Cassius and they start the march. And so everything is leading up to Act 5, which is where the great confrontation between the armies is finally going to happen. You've had this really spooky warning from the ghost. You've had Brutus kind of jumping the gun and trying to send this army off. And so now we know that the battle is going to happen at Philippi and it is coming. So that's the end of part five of Clear Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. Part six is the final part. And at last, we're going to get to see this climactic battle. We're going to get to see what happens, the fallout from the Ides of March. Thanks for listening. I hope you're really enjoying these podcasts. If you are, please go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and leave a good review. And if you really like it, I'd appreciate any help you can provide for making this podcast possible. Go to clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks. Thanks a lot. Bye.